Let's open up our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 42. In your Black Pew Bible, that's on page 602. Almost right in the middle of your Bible. And we're going to be in the first nine verses today. So let's read this together. Isaiah chapter 42, starting in verse 1. The word of God says this. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, The former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Well, if you were a fan of the History Channel, particularly between the years 2006 and 2012, you probably saw your fair share of documentaries on Nostradamus. Nostradamus was this French man who lived in the 1500s, who would make predictions about the future. And the way that these predictions were kind of portrayed in these documentaries were he got everything right. You would watch these documentaries and you would say, man, how is it that Nostradamus had all these prophetic powers? Well, come to find out, he made like 2,000 really, really vague predictions. And some of them, I guess, if you're grasping for stuff. I guess maybe it makes sense, but like not really. So for example, you may have heard that he predicted the events of September 11th. Here's why people say that. It's because he had a statement and it said this. It said, from the sky will come a great king of terror. The sky will burn at 45 degrees. Fire approaches the great new city. So people took that statement from Nostradamus and they said, look, clearly this is about September 11th. You may have also heard that he predicted the rise of Adolf Hitler. People say that because he said this. He said, a young child will be born of poor people. By his tongue, seduce a great troop fighting close by the Hister. The Hister is another name for the Danube River that flows through Europe. But it rhymes with Hitler. So people looked at that and they said, look, this is clearly talking about the rise of Adolf Hitler. Now, contrast those predictions from men like Nostradamus with predictions in the Word of God. You see, God's Word is actually very specific when it comes to predicting the future. 
Here's just one example of how specific the Word of God is. In your reading of the Bible, you may remember the name King Cyrus. King Cyrus was this pagan Persian king who in 537 B.C., after the Jews had been in exile for 70 years, he allowed the Jews to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Now, what's remarkable about Cyrus is that the prophet Isaiah, 150 years before anybody even knew anything about Cyrus, the prophet Isaiah predicts him 150 years before him by name. It's amazing. The prophet Isaiah, he prophesied during the time of the divided kingdom. So what's going on at the time when Isaiah penned this book? What's going on is Israel as a nation is divided. They're divided between a northern kingdom, which still went by the name of Israel, and a southern kingdom, which went by the name of Judah. And the big problem going on in Israel as a whole nation, the big problem going on is that not only are they fighting against themselves, but they're fighting and in rebellion against God. You see, Israel as a nation was supposed to be God's servant. Israel as a nation was supposed to honor God. Israel as a nation was supposed to be the light to the Gentile nations around them. But they were failing. They were failing miserably. They're fighting amongst themselves. On top of that, you have the people of this society essentially just going through the motions. They're doing what's required of them, but deep down, they have no genuine faith. Outwardly, they play the part, but inwardly, they are spiritually dead. What the people are doing is they're engaging in gross acts of idolatry. Just to give you an example of this, you may remember the name King Ahaz. Ahaz, who was king during this time, Ahaz, the Bible tells us that he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, which is not a good thing. Ahaz, what he did was he made these images of Baal and put them in places where they shouldn't have been. Ahaz, what he did was he sacrificed his own son to Molech, to this pagan god. So you see how bad things are in Israel at this time. On top of that, the people, not only are they engaging in idolatry and things like that, they're also engaging in what's known as syncretism. Syncretism is when you kind of like hedge your bets. So what they were doing is they were going around and they were saying, yeah, okay, we worship Yahweh. We bow down to Yahweh. But you know what? We also worship Baal. And we also worship Milcom and Molech. And we bow down to them, and we'll take little statues of them, and we'll put them in our homes just to be safe, just to be on the safe side. We got a glimpse of this, that this is, in fact, what was going on at this time in the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah was written only a few years after the book of Isaiah. And in Zephaniah chapter 1, God says this to the people. He says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom. So you see, God is not at all pleased with the syncretistic idolatry that's going on in the nation of Israel at this time. And God would have been perfectly just, 100% perfectly just, to slaughter every single person who was doing this. But he doesn't do that. Instead, what he decides to do 
is he decides to scatter them. And in Isaiah chapter 39, what Isaiah does is he predicts what's known as the Babylonian captivity. He predicts that Israel will go into exile in Babylon. And then that's exactly what happens about 100 years after chapter 39 of the book of Isaiah was written. So what God did was God used Babylon as a judge to judge the nation of Israel for their sins of idolatry, for their sins of rebellion against him. Now, starting in chapter 40 of Isaiah, there's this future aspect to these chapters. So Isaiah chapter 40 to 66 is written before the Babylonian captivity, but it's about the Babylonian captivity. And what these chapters do is they serve as an encouragement to those Jews who were going through Babylonian captivity. It serves as an encouragement to them to remember the Lord, remember that he always keeps his promises. And to us today, looking back on these chapters, it serves as an encouragement to us to see God's faithfulness and his desire to comfort all those who are afflicted. Now, there are two things that arise, two things that must be addressed that come out of Babylonian captivity. And the first thing is this. Israel as a nation was God's chosen nation. Israel as a nation was God's servant. They were supposed to honor God. They were the ones who were supposed to be the light to the Gentiles. And yet, despite the fact that they're God's chosen nation, they've been defeated. They've been sent into exile by the Babylonians. So the question that arises at a Babylonian captivity, the question that they had is, have the Babylonian gods defeated our God? Our God is supposed to be the most powerful one, and yet we've been defeated by the Babylonians. So what's going on? Has our God been defeated? Well, God answers this question at the end of Isaiah chapter 41. And here's what he says to those people who think that maybe he's been defeated. Here's what he says to the people who are thinking, maybe since our God has been defeated, maybe we ought to go after those Babylonian gods. He says this in Isaiah 41. He says to these Babylonian gods, he says, tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. So to the question, have the Babylonian gods defeated God? The answer is absolutely not. Absolutely not. Number one, the Babylonian gods aren't even real to begin with. Number two, we know that they're not real to begin with because they can't tell the future. They can't predict the future, which is why God says at the end of Isaiah 41, he says, tell us what is to come hereafter that we may know that you are gods. So they can't predict the future, but God can and does predict the future. And this is one of the main themes that's brought out in this section of Isaiah, particularly chapters 40 to 48. A main theme of this section is God's ability to tell the future with 100% accuracy is undeniable evidence for the fact that he's God. So the first question, has God been defeated? The answer, absolutely not. Second thing that arises out of Babylonian captivity is this. Israel as a nation, again, they're God's chosen nation. Israel as a nation is God's servant in the book of Isaiah. Yet, 
they've sinned and they've rebelled against him. So what is it now that they have to do in order to get back in his good graces? What is it now that they have to do? And the answer to that is found here in Isaiah chapter 42. What they need to do is they need to believe in the one that God is saying is going to come. They need to believe in God's saving servant. So Israel, as God's servant, they failed. They failed in their mission to honor God. Yet this servant presented for us in Isaiah 42, he will not fail. So when God's people are downtrodden, afflicted, when God's people are in exile with no appearance of hope on the horizon, what they ought to do is they ought to rest on the promises of God. And that's the anchor of our hope. The anchor of our hope is the fact that we can know that promises in Scripture provide us with incredible comfort in our time of need, in our time of affliction. We can know that God is faithful to his word, and we can know that what God says in his word will happen will actually happen. This text that we're in today in Isaiah chapter 42 is known as the first servant song of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are four of these servant songs in the book of Isaiah. So the first one is found here in Isaiah 42. Second one in Isaiah 49, the third one in Isaiah 50. And then the fourth servant song is probably the most famous one. This is the one that starts at the end of Isaiah 52 and goes into all of Isaiah 53. But all of these servant songs are making it clear to the people of Israel, this servant who's presented, this is the one that you need to believe in. He's the only way in which you can be reconciled to God. Now, a quick little disclaimer before we get into the text. Jewish people today, they come to these servant songs and they'll say, well, this is just talking about the nation of Israel. In fact, that's actually basically most of the time the, what they say, all these prophecies in Scripture that are talking about Jesus, they'll say, it's just talking about the nation of Israel. That's very incorrect, Okay, there are things that you'll see here in Isaiah 42. In the grammar, things that you could see that God is speaking about a specific individual. But aside from the stuff in the grammar that you could see, if you were to just think of this logically, how in the world could sinful, idolatrous, rebellious Israel save sinful, idolatrous, rebellious Israel? That makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Now, let's get into our text here. Let's see what God says to his people who are in exile. Let's see what God says to the people who are desperately in need of hope. Verse 1, he says this. He says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. So a quick little note. In your reading of the Bible, anytime you see this word behold, it is a reminder to you to pay very, very close attention to what is about to be said next. Almost like when we're having conversations with one another and maybe we're talking to somebody for like 10 to 15 minutes and you're about to say something really important. So you say maybe something along the lines of, I really need you to pay attention to what I'm about to say. That's kind of the same concept behind the word behold. So God says, behold, look, see my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights the one in whom God delights in. Who's the one that God the Father delights in continuously without fail? It's Jesus. Jesus is the one. 
If you guys remember, in Matthew chapter 3, after Jesus was baptized, what happened? A voice came from heaven, and it said this. It said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So God the Father, he delights in this servant. And listen, this is a qualifying marker. This is how we know that this servant presented here in Isaiah 42 is much different than all the other servants that we see in the book of Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, for example, Cyrus, who I mentioned earlier, he's referred to as a servant of God. And in a very real way, every single person who's ever been created is a servant of God, right? But do you think, if we were to look at, say, somebody like Cyrus, who's referred to as a servant of God, do you think God delighted in pagan King Cyrus? Absolutely not. But God the Father, he delights 100% of the time in this servant. And that's because there's a special relationship that exists between them. It's a special inter-Trinitarian relationship that exists. And we see that next because it says, I have put my spirit upon him. So we see right here at the beginning of chapter 42, we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This servant who's described here, he's the one who will fulfill the prophecy spoken about in Isaiah chapter 11. That prophecy was this. It said, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So again, this servant is clearly special, clearly unique. Now, what exactly is it that this servant will do? Well, look at what it says at the end of verse 1. It says he will bring forth justice to the nations. So he's on a mission, and he's on a mission of justice. Now, this poses a question for us here, and that question is this. Should we as Christians be concerned with justice? The answer is yes. Okay. Now, I asked that question, and maybe you're thinking, yeah, of course. Like, what type of question is that? Well, believe it or not, there are groups out there, and we would affirm these people as brothers and sisters in Christ. But they say that we shouldn't be concerned with justice because things have to get much worse before Jesus comes back. So the rationale for not being concerned with justice is, well, we want things to get much worse so that Jesus can come back. Now, while I personally think that things will get worse before Jesus comes back, and I'm sure that's the primary viewpoint of us here in this room, doesn't mean we stop pursuing justice, right? It is a good thing to pursue justice. It is good to do justice. Now, in saying and talking about justice, we need to make a distinction here because there is a big, big difference between biblical justice, which is being described here, in Isaiah chapter 42, and social justice, the way that the world has redefined this term. Okay, so social justice, the way in 2021 that this word has been redefined, is basically about categorizing everybody into two sets of people. So you have category number one, you have those who are oppressed, and then you have category number two, those who are doing the oppressing. Try hard enough, by the way, and one way or another, you could fall into category number one, 
of those who are being oppressed. At the heart of this social justice movement is this desire and this digging to see who can be the biggest victim, almost as if it's this badge of honor to be a victim. Now, contrast that worldview, that line of thinking, with biblical justice. Biblical justice actually looks out for the oppressed. Biblical justice is that which is based on the absolute moral standard of goodness. And the absolute moral standard of goodness is God himself. A great verse to go to in the scriptures that kind of sums up what biblical justice is, is Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15. It says this there. It says, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. So you see, biblical justice is impartial, whereas social justice is extremely, extremely partial. The social justice movement will say to you sitting here today, they'll say you have value because of your race or because of your gender. Meanwhile, biblical justice will say you have value because you're created in the image of God. Social justice will say that all of the world's problems are a result of privilege, whereas biblical justice will say all of the world's problems are a result of sin and the world's refusal to submit to Jesus Christ. And God's saving servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, he's the one who brings forth biblical justice. And he brings it, as the text says, to the nations, to the nations. So you see, there's a wideness to this justice that he brings. I think that there's something we could see here in this wideness of justice that he brings. And that's this. If this is the true saving servant of Israel, and he is the true saving servant of Israel, and he's the one who's to bring justice to the entire world, well, then the implication to draw out of that is that he isn't just the saving servant of Israel, but he's the saving servant of the entire world. And he brings justice to the nations. And the text told us at the beginning of the verse that he's the one who's highly favored. He's the one who God delights in all the time. And yet, even though he's highly favored by God, even though he's the one that God delights in continuously, Even though that's the case, you know what verse 2 is going to tell us about his character? It's going to tell us that he's gentle and he's humble. Look at what it says in verse 2. It says, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. So it's just a nice reminder to us to see that no matter how good we are at something, we ought to be humble and gentle when it comes to going about the things that we need to go about. And then in verse 3, it just continues to highlight the gentleness and humbleness of this servant. It says in verse 3, it says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. So let's think about this for a second. The servant here is Jesus, okay? Jesus is the strongest, most intelligent, most fearsome warrior ever. Jesus could easily use establishing justice as an excuse to not be humble, to not be gentle. But he doesn't do that. He's different. He's different. It says here, it says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. You know who the bruised reed is? 
you know who the faintly burning wick is? It's you, and it's me. You're the bruised reed, I'm the bruised reed. You're the faintly burning wick, I'm the faintly burning wick. You see, when you come to Jesus, you are broken, just like a bruised reed, broken over your sin, broken over the fact that you have nothing good to bring before him. And despite that being the case, when Jesus sees you, when you come to him downtrodden and broken over your sin, Jesus doesn't look at you and say, you're worthless, get out of here. He doesn't do that. He looks at you and he says, come to me. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to cherish you. I'm going to love you. And it's not just once, by the way, that as Christians, it's not just once that we go to Jesus as a bruised reed or as a faintly burning wick because we are continuously broken over and over again, broken over our sin. In fact, you can make the argument that the entirety of the Christian life is that of a bruised reed and that of a faintly burning wick. We get a great example in Scripture of verse 3 playing out in Matthew chapter 8. In Matthew chapter 8, what's going on there is this leper, he goes to Jesus. This leper who in that society, if you were to poll the people and say, who is it among us that's the most worthless in our society? They would have said, well, it's this man. It's this leper. And he goes to Jesus. And you know what Jesus doesn't do? Jesus doesn't say to him, get out of here, you're worthless. No, instead what Jesus does is he heals him. He cares for him. He's gentle with him. Again, it is highlighting the fact that Jesus is gentle and humble all the time. That even though the reed is bruised, he cares for it and he brings it back to health. It's an important lesson for us to see, an important lesson for us to know that we need to be those who build up and encourage those who are broken. That's what we need to do. That's what Jesus did, and we ought to strive to be like Jesus in every single way. So he's gentle towards those who are downtrodden before God. And what he'll do is he will cause justice to be proclaimed by faithfulness to who he is. And that's the next point. The next point is this. He's faithful to the end in accomplishing his task of establishing justice throughout the world. Look at what it says at the end of verse 3. It says, he will faithfully bring forth justice. So he'll go about doing this in a faithful manner. And then in verse 4, it goes on to say, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. I want you guys to imagine being tasked with this mission. I want you to pretend that you were the one tasked with the mission of establishing justice throughout the entire world. How long would it take for you to be discouraged in accomplishing this task? Probably not very long, right? You would look and you would say, this is impossible, right? I'll, I'll never be able to do that. It's so easy for us, one second to be super encouraged and then the next to be super, super discouraged. I'm sure we can all think of examples when that's happened in our lives. I know for me, a good example is about a little over two years ago, I was finishing up my second semester of Greek. And your first two semesters of Greek, you really don't like translate a lot of stuff because there's just so many other things that you need to know. You need to memorize all these charts and all these paradigms and things like that. Well, at the end of our second semester of Greek, 
we were allowed to start translating the Greek text into English. So our professor gives us the assignment, me and the 12 other men in the class, and he says, I want you guys to translate the first 14 verses of the Gospel of John. So I took this homework assignment. I was excited to do it. This is kind of the reason why you take the class. And I was encouraged while I was going through it. I was able to translate really about 90% of the words without having to look anything up. So I was pretty encouraged. So the class starts, and the professor calls on me first. So I'm encouraged. I thought I did this great job, and he goes, all right, Dan, take us through the first two verses of the Gospel of John, which was kind of easy. Most of us have it memorized. But I read the Greek text, and I gave him my translation, right? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And I said that, and he goes, all right, good job. I say thanks. Very encouraged. Then he starts to ask me specific questions, and he goes, all right, Dan, What's going on with this prepositional phrase here in verse 1? How is it functioning? How do you know what is there in the Greek text that tells you that it's functioning in this manner? And I go, I'm sorry, the, the prepositional what? Like, I don't even know. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. And then he calls, on, he calls on somebody else in the class, and they give the correct answer, like, right away. So then he comes back to me, and he says, all right, he goes, Let, let's try this one. This demonstrative pronoun at the beginning of verse 2, what's its antecedent? How do you know? How is it functioning? What is there in the Greek text that tells you that it's functioning in this way? And I just said, Professor, I'm sorry. I have no idea what you're talking about. And then he called on somebody, and they gave the correct answer right away. You see what happened to me? I went from being very encouraged to incredibly discouraged within, I don't know, 50 seconds You know who never gets discouraged when it comes to accomplishing what he sets out to do? Jesus. Jesus never gets discouraged. There is nothing, and I mean nothing, that will ever stop Jesus from accomplishing what he sets out to do. Now, I want you to notice in these first four verses, I want you to notice the three things that are said here about justice. The first thing we saw was at the end of verse 1. It says he will bring forth justice to the nations. So there's a wideness to this justice that he's bringing forth. Second thing we saw about justice is found in verse 3, where it says he will faithfully bring forth justice. So he will go about establishing biblical justice in a faithful manner. And then the last thing we saw about justice was in verse 4, where it says he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. So he won't rest. He won't rest until this task is completed. Now, in these opening verses, what God is doing, what God was doing to those Jews who were in Babylonian captivity, desperately in need of hope, what God is doing for us here in Matawan, New Jersey, desperately in need of hope, is he's introducing this servant to us. And he's basically asking this question, and the question is this, will you behold him? Will you delight in him? Will you delight in him as I delight in him? And that's the question. That's the question that every single person who has ever existed needs to reconcile themselves with. Will you behold Christ? Now, what God has said in these first four verses in Isaiah chapter 42, what he said is so incredible, so amazing, 
to think that somebody, that there would be a specific individual who could accomplish the task of establishing justice throughout the world. It's so incredible that some would almost be unwilling to believe it. Some would say, no, this can't possibly be the case that somebody could do this. So what the prophet Isaiah is about to do in verse 5 is he is about to state God's credentials. He is about to combat that line of thinking that says, no, nobody could possibly do this by basically showing the reader the authority behind what was just said. Here's what he says in verse 5. He says, thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. So Isaiah is saying, here's the authority behind what was just said in the first four verses. And the authority is God himself. It's God himself. He's the one who upholds the heavens and the earth. He's the one who spreads the earth. He's the one who gives breath to people. He's the one who gives people a soul. God does all of this. And if God does all of this, and since he does do all of this, you can rest assured that he will fulfill his promises. So it's acting as an assurance to the listener that these words can and should be trusted. Now, in verses 6 and 7, there's a shift that occurs. So the first four verses, God was speaking directly to the people in Babylonian captivity, directly to those desperately in need of hope. But now verses 6 and 7 present a shift, and God the Father goes from speaking to those people to now speaking specifically to his saving servant. So this is God the Father speaking to God the Son, and the Father says to the Son in the first part of verse 6, he says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. So the Father affirms that he's called Jesus in righteousness to fulfill his righteous purposes, to bring about everlasting righteousness to his people. How is it that the Lord Jesus can bring about everlasting righteousness to his people? Well, look at what it says next in verse 6. It says, I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. So this is the means by which God's people can enjoy everlasting righteousness. And it's by this servant, by Jesus, being a mediator of the covenant for us. That's what he is. He's the mediator of this covenant being spoken about. Hebrews chapter 8 says this. It says, the covenant he mediates is better. You know what covenant is being spoken about here in Isaiah 42? It's called the covenant of grace the covenant of grace. Now, in order for us to fully understand what the covenant of grace is, we need to talk about the two covenants that came prior to the covenant of grace. So the first covenant ever is known as the covenant of redemption. This is the covenant that occurred before the foundation of the world in eternity past. This is the covenant between God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. In this covenant, what, what happened was God God the Father, he planned redemption and decides to send the Son into the world. In this covenant, the Son, he agrees to willingly come into the world and to do the work necessary to save sinners. And in the Holy Spirit, he agrees to apply the work of the Son to those who would put their faith in him, convicting them of their sin, showing them their need to be reconciled to God. 
And then what happened was God created the world. And when God created the world, he created Adam. And with Adam, he created what's known as the covenant of works. And in the covenant of works, what would happen is Adam would be rewarded for his obedience. And you know what happened? Adam broke his end of the deal. Adam sinned. He rebelled against God. And then what God did immediately, the second that Adam broke this covenant, is God instituted a covenant of grace. That God in his grace would justify sinners not based on their own merit or obedience, but based on faith in Jesus. You see, in the covenant of grace, Jesus is the one who does the work for us. So the covenant of works that God made with Adam was basically, basically this, do this and live. The covenant of grace is this is what God has done for you in Christ. And notice, notice that it says that he's given as a covenant for the people a light to the nations. So this isn't just for the Jewish people. Just like there is a wideness to the justice that this servant is establishing, there's a wideness to whom this servant acts as a mediator of the covenant for. It's for both Jew and Gentile alike. And under the covenant of grace, what the servant does, what the Lord Jesus does, is he delivers us from the blinding power of sin. Look at what it says in verse 7 as to one of the reasons as to why he's the mediator of this covenant. It says, To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. Guys, listen. Jesus made it very clear that verse 7 of Isaiah 42 was speaking about him. You might remember in Luke chapter 4, what Jesus does is he goes into the synagogue and he unrolls the scroll of Isaiah. And he reads from the scroll of Isaiah and he reads, he goes to Isaiah chapter 61. And he reads there and it's basically this just said in slightly different words. He reads this out loud in the synagogue and he says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And then after he read that there in the synagogue, he said to the people there, he said, today in your hearing, this has been fulfilled. What he was getting at was the fact that he's the one that delivers people out of their bondage of sin. And that's what he's done for us. If your faith is in Jesus, he's delivered you out of your bondage to sin. And let me just say this. When we say he's delivered you out of your bondage to sin, we are speaking about all sin, okay? Jesus has brought us out of our bondage to every sin. And listen, this even includes sexual sins, okay? And this is important to talk about because there's this movement really within the last five or six years that is basically saying, hey, come to Christ. He'll, you know, free you from your bondage to sin with the exception of sexual sin. So the thinking goes like this. Oh, well, there's a man, let's say this man is addicted to pornography. Well, come to Jesus. You know, he'll save you from every other sin. But this sin of pornography, you're always going to deal with all the time. Or this line of thinking will say, to the homosexual, 
It'll say, yeah, come to Jesus, but, you know, this sin that you have, you're always going to have it. Guys, that's just not true. That's not true at all. What it is, is it's neglecting the efficacy of the new birth because Jesus takes us and takes people out of their bondage to sin, all sin. And that even includes sexual sin. And we see this, a great place to go to in the scriptures to combat this line of thinking is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It says here, it says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So the word of God is clear. These people will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then look at what it says next. Arguably one of the greatest sentences in all of scripture. It says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. So please don't let anybody deceive you and lie to you by saying that the power of Christ, the power of the gospel, is insufficient to break somebody from the bounds of sexual sin. Now, in these last two verses, what God does is he goes back to addressing the people in, in exile, goes back to addressing those who are desperately in need of hope. And what he's going to do is he's going to give them one more reminder as to why they can trust him above all else. Here's what he says in verse 8. He says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. So God, he shares his glory with nobody else. Nobody else. And listen, this isn't selfish of God to say, by the way. Okay, he's the one who deserves the glory. The best thing for you is to go about and do everything that you can for the glory of God. And he tells us that he shares his glory with nobody else, especially not the carved idols that the people were so tempted to go after. For us today, he doesn't share his glory with the idols in our own hearts that we're so tempted to go after. And then in verse 9, what the Lord does is he kind of just sums up and brings up one of the main themes again that we see in this section. He says, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So again, if you remember, this is one of the big things that he's bringing out in this, in this section. And it's that his ability to accurately tell the future is undeniable evidence for the fact that he's God. And he has promised here, he promised these Jews in Babylonian captivity to send his servant to establish justice. This was the message of hope to the Jew in Babylonian captivity back then. This is the message of hope to us here in 2021. It's the same message of hope to trust in the servant. You know, God, all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, God predicted that Jesus would come here and establish justice. God predicted that Jesus would come here and bear the full wrath of the penalty of justice for his people. You think, for example, of Psalm 22, which we actually just went over yesterday, all the men together at our men's group. Psalm 22 is so obviously about the Lord Jesus Christ that you would think after reading it, you would think and say, 
This had to have been written after the crucifixion of Jesus. Then you come to find out it was written a thousand years before Christ was crucified, written 700 years before crucifixion was even a thing. And you look at Psalm 22, and it's clearly talking about a man being crucified. It says, they've pierced my hands and my feet. And in Psalm 22, it talks about people looking at this man hanging on a cross and saying, he trusted in the Lord, let the Lord deliver him. It's exactly what happened to Jesus. It talks in Psalm 22, it talks about this man hanging on the cross, that they'll take his garments, divide them amongst themselves, and in for his clothing, they'll cast lots. It's exactly what happened to Jesus. And you think and you say, how can something like Psalm 22 be so spot on? Well, it's just giving more evidence for the fact that God is God, and he's the one who accurately tells the future. You know, so accurate were the predictions of God in the Old Testament, and so accurate are his predictions, that everybody was waiting for the Messiah. Everybody was waiting for the Christ because they had evidence to go back to in the scriptures to say, look, God fulfills his promises. He's promised to send his Messiah. And they were all waiting for him, all waiting for the servant, constantly wondering, constantly saying, where is the servant? Where is he? Who is he? Who's the one that's going to establish justice? Who's the one that's going to break us out of our bondage to sin? And then about 700 years after Isaiah penned this prophecy, he arrived on the scene. Jesus was born. The incarnation happened. 30 years he lived, and then for the last three years of his life, his earthly ministry, going around telling people, I'm the only way in which you can be saved, the only way in which you can be reconciled to God. And what happened? The people rejected him. And we shouldn't be surprised that the people rejected him because God's word predicted that the people would reject him. And the call today to the unbeliever is to behold Christ. Behold Christ, the light in Christ. And the call today to the believer is the exact same thing. Behold Christ, the light in Christ, continuously delight in him. Continuously go to him as a bruised reed and as a faintly burning wick, knowing that if you come to him broken over your sin, broken over the fact that you have nothing good to bring before him, that he'll be faithful to his word. He promises for you, believer. He says, come unto me, and I'll never cast you out. The call today, come and behold the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. God, we, we thank you, God, for your word. Thank you, God, that the, the testimony of the scriptures we could see was always for you to send Jesus into the world to establish justice, to free us out of our bondage to sin. And we thank you, God, that we have been freed from the bondage of sin. Thank you, God, that we're no longer slaves to our sin. Thank you, God, that we could continuously go to you as a bruised reed and as a faintly burning wick. God, I pray if there's anybody in here who hasn't yet put their faith in Christ, I pray, Lord, that you would soften their heart and cause them to be born again. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.